1 John 3, beginning in verse 4, John says to us there, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. And Father, we just ask as we continue in our worship now by opening up the word of God, that Lord, by your spirit, you would prepare each and every one of us standing here in this room. Lord, we're standing in a sense attentive, Lord. We, we want our marching orders spiritually. We want to hear from you what it is that your spirit wants to say to us through the word of God this morning. So bless your word and make us receptive to hear what you're trying to say to us personally and collectively as the people who are assembled here this day for this worship gathering. And we ask this expectantly in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. You know, it has accurately been said that fruit doesn't lie. Fruit doesn't lie. Now, in creation, fruit, of course, is that substantive thing that ends up being outwardly produced in accordance with and because of the inward DNA of a particular tree. So again, it doesn't take a real depth of biology to understand that apple trees continually produce what? Apples. See that? Apples. I have never in my adult life waited for an apple tree to eventually produce oranges. They continually produce apples because the DNA of that tree inwardly, the sap that flows through the branches that causes the fruit to be produced will continually be apples. Orange trees continually produce oranges. That is why Jesus who is the God of creation, who created physical nature and everything else that exists, Jesus said, you will know a tree or recognize the kind of tree it is by its fruit. That if you just wait and watch and then observe what fruit is being produced outwardly, Jesus said that is a clear way to recognize and identify what kind of tree that is because the inward nature of the tree is producing the outward fruit as evidence to reveal what's true of it inwardly. We can be assured that the inward nature and condition is what keeps producing outward fruit. And Jesus, of course, was applying that in regards to what is true of spiritual life. And God's word tells us in regards to spiritual life that it's not verbal profession, but it is routine practice of outward living continuously that reveals a person's true spiritual condition. That is what our text is addressing this morning. John, having learned those very lessons directly from the Lord Jesus. Remember, John the Apostle walked with Jesus during his three-and-a-half-year ministry. He heard Jesus say firsthand, you will recognize the tree by its fruit. Good trees don't produce bad fruit. Bad trees don't produce good fruit. By your fruit, you will recognize the inward condition of a person. John had heard Jesus tell people that, as well as many other hard truths from time to time, in love for people and in really caring about their welfare. So John now, being directed by the Holy Spirit, in the fruit of love, he speaks the truth right here in our verses for the exact same purpose. 
John is saying things here that human beings may not necessarily want to hear. They may not necessarily find it easy to swallow, but they are things that are very healthy that to swallow and digest the reality of such truths from God are actually for our own welfare because God loves us. God speaks to us very directly. God desires that no man be deceived, but that we know where we stand so that we can be certain. And not just so that we can be certain, but so that we know where we stand so that we can respond, that we have the opportunity to respond correctly to God. That's why he says in our verses here, things like little children or precious children. He says, verse seven, let no one deceive you. Don't become deceived. Don't allow yourself to be deceived. It's not the heart of God. He says in verse 10, very strongly, in this, the children of God, and then look what he says, the children of the devil. Ouch. The children of God and the children of the devil are manifest or revealed, made known in these things. I would venture to say it's pretty important to know if we are a child of God or a child of the devil? I'd like to know, wouldn't you? Who wouldn't want to know that? Am I a child of God, or am I a child of the devil? Those are two pretty strong contrasting statements. God's main point, I think, above all else, is that we would set aside as human beings our feelings, the excuses that we make, the ways that we rationalize, and accept that fruit doesn't lie. And that fruit is the honest evidence to know where we stand so that we can respond accordingly or be assured accordingly. And again, very important as we look at these verses together this morning, let me say as a preface, to understand that in this section, the language being used is in what we call the present active tense. Now, I'm not an English major, nor am I very edumacated, I will confess, but I do read a little bit, and through reading and research, you begin to understand, just like in the English language, in the Greek original language of the New Testament, there are different tenses that the writers would be utilizing as the Holy Spirit was guiding them. And the present active tense is the language in these verses, which means this, that what is being done is being done continually. It's a continuous habitual practice that's being referred to, that is the language, that this is the ongoing life habit or the ongoing practice. Many of the modern translations capture that, I think, even a little bit more clearly in the way the phrases are rendered in the English. They say things like, everyone who practices sin versus he who practices doing what's right. We see phrases there like, everyone who keeps on sinning, he who continues in sin, or those born into God's family do not make the practice of continually sinning. That's the language of this. In other words, John here is not addressing, nor is God's spirit, indicating things of isolated episodes of sin or a periodic failure that someone may enter into from time to time. But what he's addressing is being okay, listen, with the habitual practice of sin, with continuing in sin, with being comfortable with a life practice of sin, a routine participation in sin, living in a sinful way continually. Remember, the last thing John had just declared in verse 3, our prior verse, was how knowing that Jesus is returning and having a hope of that reality is actually a very purifying effect because we don't want to be living in sin when he returns, and we want to be ready to meet him. Now, in contrast to that, he then says here, going on in verse 4, look at our text, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin, he says, is lawlessness. So he speaks here of the condition, notice, of a person who is living in a very self-serving way, and thereby they're living in rebellion to God's way, and they're basically disregarding God's authority. He says here in our verse, whoever commits sin. Now, what does it mean to commit sin? Well, in many ways, it's much like committing crime. 
God is the ultimate authority. God is the creator of all human beings and over all creation and being a loving creator and a wise creator and wanting what is, again, healthy for all of us here in humanity. God has a healthy, wonderful plan for every human being's life. But because of that, and as a holy, righteous creator, God has a standard of what is righteous. God has a standard of what is holy. You might say it's God's law. God is a moral law, a spiritual law that we are to live by as his human beings who he has created. So to commit sin, therefore, in its simplest way, to commit sin is basically anything by a person thought, anything by a person done, anything said by a person that basically displeases God because of the fact that it disregards God's authority. So anything that we could think, anything that we can say, anything that we can do that basically disregards God's authority as the ultimate one who establishes moral and spiritual law, that is what the Bible would say is sin. And that's why he says here in verse four to sort of expound that truth, he says there, look at it, he says, sin is lawlessness. The idea, it's living in rebellion to God's law. It's living in a way whereby we're rebelling against God's rulership, God's holy, spiritual, and moral law. And the Bible teaches that every human being is sinful by nature, that we are born inclined to do what is wrong. And every sinful human being born that way commits sin from time to time. The Bible says that we all sin, we all fall short of the standard, the glory of God's holiness and God's righteousness. That that is the one common thread among every breathing human being on this planet. It does not matter your background. It does not matter your upbringing. It does not matter whether you have a good family or a bad family. It doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor. It does not matter what your race. It does not matter what your ethnicity is. It does not matter where you're born on the planet. None of those other things have any bearing on the fact that being born human is to be born, the Bible says, sinful. That we all wrestle with that. We are born in that condition from what we inherited from all of our own first parent, Adam and Eve. And because of that, we struggle with sin. We wrestle with it. We all fall short of the standard. And even after we are saved, even after a person receives Jesus Christ and starts to walk with the Lord and the Holy Spirit starts helping us to gain victory over sin, from time to time, we still fail at times. We still make mistakes on occasion. That's what John discussed back in chapters 1 and 2 where he said the blood of Jesus Christ has cleansed us from all sin. He's taken away our guilt from a judgmental standpoint before God, but John also said in chapter one that if we say that we no longer sin, that we're lying to ourselves and to others, that if we begin to say as a Christian, well, I don't sin anymore now. I'm completely sinless now. I'm, I'm totally righteous. I never struggle with sin at all anymore. The Bible says you're lying to yourself. You're lying to everybody still wrestles from time to time, even after we become a Christian, what the difference is, is however, when we fail as a Christian by sinning, we're not comfortable like that. We instantly feel convicted. And when we fail on occasion or sin on occasion, we sense conviction from the Holy Spirit within. We desire to admit the error. We're miserable. We, we're, we're drawn to seek forgiveness right away and to tell the Lord we're sorry. We want to turn away from what we've done wrong. And the Bible says that if we confess our sins, we know he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What John is concerned about here in our verses, his concern is the person who continually commits sin routinely. The person who is willing to constantly keep practicing sin as a habitual way of living, to continue in sin. When he says there, he who commits sin, the idea is in the language is he who is continually committing sin is continually committing lawlessness. They're continually rebelling against the authority of God in an ongoing matter where they practice a sinful way of life and their lifestyle includes committing sin in a way that's routine, it's a part of their life practice, and they're okay with it. 
They're accepting of it. They're willing to just allow it to be like that. Such a person proves that they've become comfortable to live in a manner where they're living lawless in rebellion to God. And God would say, that's pretty brazen. That's, That's pretty rebellious. That's like being a constant criminal breaking the law continually out there, living like a lawbreaker continuously against God. And John will now show us how being able to continually practice sin really contradicts all that Jesus is and all that Jesus came to do. So it causes a tremendous contradiction to say, I know Jesus, but I live in sin. And John's going to say, there's a real problem with that. That's a real contradiction of terms. Look what he goes on to say in verse 5. He says, and you know that he, referring to Jesus, was manifested, he says, to take away our sins, and then he says of Jesus, and in him, Jesus, there is no sin. So John declares now, and he's going to build upon this, how the life of our Lord Jesus living as a man on the earth was completely pure. Jesus lived a sinless life, as well as the whole purpose and reason Jesus came was to free us from sin, to get us out of sin, to help us stop sinning, to free us from the power of sin ruling over our life from our birth. He speaks here in our verse, in verse 5, of Jesus' sinless life while living in a body of flesh as a man. Look what he says there in verse 5, in him, that's our Lord Jesus, John says there is no sin. That is, our Lord Jesus Christ, when he came to live on this earth as a man, had no, we might say, inherent sin. He was not born in the same way you and I are with an inherent sin nature from two sinful human parents. The reason is, of course, is because Jesus was born differently. Jesus was born by God the Father, miraculously putting the life of his holy son into the womb of a virgin woman miraculously so that Jesus might be born of a virgin with God as his father and a human mother so that he might therefore be born being fully God and fully human at the exact same time. However, because he was not born of two human parents, but God as his father miraculously put the life of him in the virgin womb of Mary, it allowed Jesus to be born without an inherent sin nature like you and I have because he was born in that way. In order to become the needed savior for humanity, he had to be born that way. So if you ever tell anyone or see anyone trying to get rid of the the doctrine of the sinless life of Jesus Christ, they're ruining salvation. Jesus had to be sinless or he could not save us. It was essential that he was born that way, but also that he would then live out that way to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. 2 Corinthians 5 says that as Jesus lived, Jesus knew no sin. That is, he never came to know experientially sin in any way. He never experienced it one time. Jesus never selfishly thought one thing wrong. Hard to imagine for me. (laughs) I do that quite frequently. Jesus never one time spoke something and afterwards realized That was wrong to say. Never once. Hard to imagine. Jesus never did one selfish, sinful thing in action. He lived the perfect fulfillment of a righteous life. 1 Peter 2 says that Jesus never committed sin. Amazing, but that's what makes Jesus so precious and incredible, that he lived that righteous life that we can. Hebrews 4.15 even says it this way. Jesus was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. He never succumbed to temptation, was tempted just like us, but he never gave in to temptation, never thought a wrong thing, never said a wrong thing, never did a wrong thing, always resisted sin, always overcame, and living out that sinless life as a man, as I said, was essential for him to offer his life as the sinless substitute to God, fulfilling the righteous requirements of the law as a man, so that that would be acceptable and that through him and accepting what he did for us, we might experience his righteousness. The Bible says, 2 Corinthians 5, he knew no sin in such a way there, but he might give to us his righteousness to offer that to us. 
in a way whereby we might be acceptable to God through Jesus. Now, the fact that Jesus lived a sinless life as a man, that's who he was, John also adds to that here in verse 5, telling us, he says, you know that he was manifested, notice, to take away our sins. So the whole purpose and reason for Jesus coming as a man, the Bible says here once again, was to free us from sin, to take sin away from us. Jesus' whole life existence, his death on the cross, substitutionary for ours, his resurrection from the dead, his ascension back into heaven, that was all intentionally to remove sin from our lives. That is to remove the punishment that we deserve for our sin eternally so that we don't have to be judged and go to hell. But it also was Jesus coming to take away our sins to free us as well from the power of sin controlling our lives. This inherent sin nature from dominating us and ruling us our whole life so that we could stop practicing sin the way that we did so freely before we met Jesus. And he freed us from that power ruling over life. That's what Romans chapter 6 in the word of God is all about. Jesus defeating sin's power so that we can now overcome sin if we genuinely know Jesus Christ and he's a part of our life and he is living within us and ruling over our heart so that we no longer have to be, the Bible says, slaves of sin. Because that's what we are until we meet Jesus. We're slaves. We may not want to admit we're slaves, but we're slaves to it. We were born slaves to it. But Jesus says, you may still struggle, but now that I'm in your life, you don't have to be a slave anymore. Sin doesn't have to dominate you and rule you. You and I as a Christian, we now have a choice. Sometimes we choose wrong, but we have a choice now. We can walk in victory. We can walk in the power of the Spirit. Sin doesn't have to have dominion over us. The Bible says we can now walk in a new way of life. Therefore, if Jesus himself, John's reasoning is, if Jesus himself was sinless, as well as the fact that Jesus came to free us from sin, John's going to say it's really contradictory to say I'm right with Jesus, but I'm okay with sin. John's going to say it just doesn't make sense. It doesn't line up. He's saying if, if we're living an ongoing relationship with the sinless Jesus who always resisted sin, who always turned away from sin, who didn't want to participate in sin. And if Jesus came to take away sin from our lives, that's the reason that he came to take sin away from us, to free us from sin. How could a person living in relationship with Jesus keep continuously living in sin? How could they keep committing sin and have no conscience over such? Again, it's an utter contradiction to all of Jesus represents and really, it's a denial, truly, it's a denial of Jesus' power to be able to take sin away from our lives, to free us from sin's power. It would be like saying, forgive me for being facetious, but I'm trying to be honest, it'd be like saying, Jesus and I are in good relationship, but he told me that he's okay with me living in this particular sinful way. We're in good relationship. He said, you know, I'm okay with that sin in your life. Or it'd be like Jesus saying to, to a person, yeah, we're in good relationship, but uh, you know what? That sin, I, I'm okay with leaving that one in your life. That's okay, that one. I mean, I want to take all these out of your life, but that sin, go ahead. I'm going to give you that one. I mean, just the, the lunacy of that kind of thinking or the sadness really above all else is to convey the fact I'm in good relationship with Jesus, but I continuously live in a practice of sin is also conveying Jesus just doesn't have the power to free me from this. I mean, he's the Savior, but I just he, he can't deliver me from this. He just doesn't have the power to get me out of this sin. He doesn't have the power to take this sin out of my life. It's, in a sense, an affront, right, to all of Jesus, who he is and what he came to do and what he represents. And I think John really is just... My personal opinion, again, he's over 90 years old. He just doesn't have time to waste thinking foolishly anymore. <laughs> so, so John, I mean, he's, John's in his 90s. He's saying, come on, live there, done that, been there. This is just contradiction. So he kind of cuts to the bottom line, to the reality of spiritual truth. He says, verse 6, whoever abides in him, again, our word abide, we've talked about it, means to continue in, to remain together with, 
to stay connected to. So he's saying the person who continues in relationship with Jesus, the person who is in an ongoing way connected to a personal relationship with Jesus, he says, verse 6, does not continue to sin. The person who is having an ongoing, continual walk with the Lord won't live in ongoing sin. Their life will be characterized by trying to walk with Jesus, but it will certainly not be characterized continuously. A Christian who's walking with Jesus, their life will not be characterized by practicing sin in a habitual way of living. He says that that's just a contradiction. The reason is because real partnership with Jesus won't allow such. If Jesus is living within a person and they're living in close relationship with Jesus, Jesus will constantly be working in their life to free them from that sin. Now, again, as I said earlier, granted, is a person, as a Christian, once in a while going to stumble? Of course. Is it possible they may struggle for a time with a particular sin? Yes. But they can't remain in continual practice of sin in an unceasing way. The presence of Jesus within them would simply not allow them to not turn away or turn back to the Lord because the power of Jesus and the life of Jesus and the whole intention of Jesus is always going to be working in them to seek to take away that sin from their life, to get them out of sin. So John says in connection to that in the rest of verse 6, therefore whoever sins, and again the language is whoever continues in sin whoever continues habitually to live in sin, John says, here's the truth. That person has neither seen Jesus, nor do they know him. And the word know is to know in an experiential way. So the person who continues to live in a practice of sin can do so, the Bible says, not me, the Bible says they can continue to do that for one reason, and it's because they've never truly had a real encounter with the sinless Son of God. They've just never genuinely come to know Jesus. They've never had that real encounter with him. They've not known a true experience with the Lord who seeks to take away sin from our lives. That's the whole purpose he enters into it. One translation renders this phrase, anyone who keeps on sinning does not know Jesus or understand who Jesus is. So God declares an ongoing practice of sin and a willingness and an ability to do such just reveals that a person truly does not know his son yet. And I say yet, because there's always still hope why a person's still breathing, right? Jesus said it this way in Matthew 7, by their fruits you will know or recognize them. Jesus said this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And then I will declare to many, I wish he said a few, I will declare to many, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice, see the term? Practice lawlessness. So Jesus said, not verbal for profession, but ongoing practice reveals the true fruit that doesn't lie. And again, did he say that to be sharp with people? Of course not. He said that to be straight with people, to be honest with people because he loves us and he doesn't want us as people to be misguided in regards to spiritual and eternal things. And Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, oh, I went forward. I prayed that prayer. That guy said, if you just come forward, everybody will clap for you. And while they're clapping for you and you're feeling good about yourself, then they're going to have you say this prayer. And you're going to say some things about the Lord. But the problem is, and I'm not saying all, but some people do that, and then they go back and they practice lawlessness. And they think, just because I said Lord, Lord, or just because I call him Lord, or I say, and Jesus says, no, what's the fruit? What's the ongoing fruit? Someone who continues to do the will of the Father. Listen, I, I never went forward in an altar call. I got saved in a bedroom with myself and my best friend who led me to Christ. But I know that 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 I know 
what happened in my life, and Jesus started changing my life. And it's not an overnight process, but the fruit begins to be manifest. The fruit begins to become the evidence. And Jesus said it is very important to understand those who he says, verse 6, are continuing in a relationship with Jesus, abiding in him, he says there, they're not going to continue to live in sin. They're going to want to turn away from it. They're going to begin to turn away from sin. But he says on the other side of that, the person who continuously sins has neither really seen him in a genuine way and they've never truly come to know him yet and that's why they're capable to keep doing that. Now, because this is so crucial, John says, little children, notice, let no one deceive you. So because the eternal destiny of human souls are at risk, heaven or hell forever, it's because of that reason this aged apostle at 90 years old who doesn't really care at that age what people think about him anymore he really drills down now, and he says, look, this is important. So he drills down on this matter that fruit doesn't lie. He says, for love's sake, he says, little children, don't let anyone deceive you. His heart is God does not want any person to be deceived because he loves people about their own spiritual condition, which means God does not want me to be deceived about my own spiritual condition, and God also does not want us to be deceived about other people around us' spiritual condition, that we might pray for them accordingly and love them and do what we can to relate to them. And sadly, look, the devil's deception of exploiting human pride and false human reasoning contributes to a lot of deception in regards to this particular area, and that makes complete sense. And so John is kind of blowing the, the caution here and saying, look, don't let anyone deceive you, verse 7. Look what he goes on to say. He really drills down. He who practices righteousness, again, notice practices, practices righteousness is righteous, just as he, Jesus, is righteous. So if the general life practice of a person is they live in a righteous way, in alignment with the right way of life, to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, to live in his paths, that person can be comfortably assured they are in right relationship with God. Doesn't mean they do everything perfectly, doesn't mean they don't stumble and fail on occasion, but if the general practice of their life is to live in a right way before God, seeking to live in righteous ways to please Jesus, then he says that person can know and be assured. They don't have to be deceived with fear and condemnation. They can be assured, he says, verse 7, that if they practice righteousness, they are righteous just like Jesus is righteous. Again, certainly Christians can stumble and fall. Peter denied the Lord. But the general practice of a believer's life is that ongoing connection to Jesus, which keeps them following Jesus and pleasing the Lord. And so again, the result of that is going to be manifest in the fruit of our life, and that is what gives to us that spiritual comfort that we truly know Jesus. Because the general characterization of my life is I'm living different. I used to live wrong. Now I'm generally trying to continuously live right. I'm trying to honor Jesus. I want to walk with Jesus. I'm trying to live in a righteous way is the general practice of my life. And that's what shows us that we know Jesus. And it's also what shows one another that we know him so that we can be assured and that we can observe those who we know and love around us. I can rest assured, hey, I can see that that person knows Jesus. That makes me feel comfortable. I can see by their life practice, it's pretty evident that they know Jesus, the way that they live. However, in contrast, he says, verse 8, he who sins, continuously sins, is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. So in the same manner, living righteous reflects living in connection to the righteous one, Jesus. Those who therefore reflect the nature and the ways of the devil, the Bible says, simply prove in the same way they're not in relationship with Jesus, but still spiritually connected to the devil at that stage in their life. He says there in verse 8, notice, for the devil, what was his life characterized? Jesus was characterized by righteous living. The devil, he says, has sinned from the beginning. Now, we know from Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, that the devil, once being created by God as a holy angel with a very high-ranking position in heaven, decided to do what? Rebel against God. 
to rebel against the law and the authority of holy God. He rebelled against God in sinful ways, the devil's heart being filled with pride and selfishness, rebelled against God's rule, and he disregarded the way of God. He disregarded the holy, righteous law of God to seek self-serving desires of evil. And since that time of the first rebellious act of the devil, he has continued to just propagate and to encourage and to inspire the ways of humanity. He's led the way of sin for all of humanity now. And he continues to encourage human beings, seeking to deceive mankind, to rebel against God, to indulge their sinful desires, to follow their sinful inherent nature. And the way of the devil is a way of sin. It's a way of indulging sin. It's a way of rebelling against God and disobeying God. Therefore, he says, those who are in spiritual connection to the devil will be guided to act the way the devil does. That's why he says there, the devil's been sinning from the beginning, so he who continuously sins like the devil is of the devil. They're spiritually connected to the devil. The idea is they're still under the devil's rule. That's who's mastering them still spiritually. They're not yet saved. They've not yet surrendered to the lordship of Jesus. They are still under their fallen condition from birth, and the devil is still ruling and manipulating and controlling the way that they live. And whether a person realizes that or not, and I say that because I didn't know the first almost 18 years of my life, that was my genuine spiritual condition. I probably would have been insulted too if somebody said, hey, Tony, you're a child of the devil. (laughs) What, bro? Child of the devil? Your mama. No, I mean, I I would have been upset too. I, I mean, just, you don't think that way. But God's word says the reality is that if a person lives in ongoing partnership with the ways of the devil, that spiritually, whether they're conscious of it or not, the devil is who is subtly guiding the practices of their life. Ephesians 2 says it this way, speaking of the condition prior to us being saved, those in the world, he says, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world who's obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God, encouraging people like blinded slaves who don't even know they're enslaved. That's the scary part, right? It's slavery, and a person doesn't even realize they're enslaved, yet that choice to live in a practice of sin reveals that they are not in right relationship with God. One translation says it this way, when people keep on sinning continually, it shows that they belong to the devil who has been sinning from the beginning. Now, let me say, where does John get that kind of strong mindset to start talking about people being a child of the devil and of the devil? Well, from an all-knowing, loving Lord who once created the devil and then sadly saw the devil rebel and has witnessed for all human history how the devil has been misguiding human beings in destructive ways. In John chapter 8, Jesus said, and let me emphasize, to the religious leaders of his day, not drug dealers, not murderers, not, you know, religious leaders. Jesus said to very religious people, routines of religion, he said this to them, I'm telling you what I saw when I was with my father, but you are following the advice of your own father. Our father is Abraham, the religious leaders declared. No, Jesus replied, for if you were really the children of Abraham, you would follow his example. Instead, you are trying to kill me because I told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham never did such a thing. No, you are imitating your real father. They replied, we aren't illegitimate children. God himself is our true father, as any good religious person would say, right? God himself is our true father. Jesus said, if God were your father, you would love me because I've come to you from God and I'm not here on my own, but he sent me. Why can't you understand what I'm saying? It's because you can't even hear me for you 
are children of your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires to do the evil things that he does. Jesus, God, who loves people and knows more about spiritual realities than anyone else, said as people were living in sinful practices consistent with the ways of the devil, it revealed connection to the devil. Jesus said this, John's just reiterating it, and as people live in ongoing practices of sin, in proud ways, in rebellious ways to the word of God, in destructive manners, in dishonest ways, and they can live in a habitual lifestyle of rebelling against God and his ways. The Bible simply says, God declares that just reveals their spiritual condition. They are not in a relationship with God. They're not. That's why they can continue to live that way. They have not genuinely had that encounter of being saved. Now, John in verse 8 goes on to say this. Look, for this purpose, the Son of God was manifested or revealed in the earth that he might what? Destroy the works of the devil. So John is going to build on that saying the very purpose, again, the Son of God came, the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, was to put an end to the works of the devil and to the work the devil is doing in every unsafe person's life who is just you know, blindly being misled by him. And he said, Jesus came to stop the unrestrained rulership of the devil to control humanity. The Bible teaches Jesus' coming, Jesus' work and his life, death, resurrection and ascension, his sinless and substitutionary death on the cross and all the accomplished in, our, in that salvation work defeated the opportunity of the devil to have universal rulership over all mankind. Colossians 2 says he triumphed over the power of the devil. He broke the back of the devil's rulership to be able to rule over every human being at all times so that freedom and deliverance is now possible through a different ruler, the rulership of Jesus, who can set people free. Jesus says, if the Son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. See, what Jesus did in coming into this earth, he says, he, for this purpose, this was the reason the purpose Son of God was sent was that he would be able to destroy the works of the devil. He destroys the devil's power to rule over me, to rule over you, to rule over any person who's willing to take a different ruler spiritually over their life. Now, considering what Jesus did to destroy the works of the devil, again, can you see how John's saying it's a contradiction to keep doing the works of the devil in sin and say, I know God. I'm a Christian, I follow Jesus, God would say, you have a misguided perception spiritually. You're rationalizing. Don't do that, he would say. You're rationalizing. Now, on the other side of that, let me just say, how glorious of a truth to me, verse 8 is, for the follower of Jesus, that he says there, for this purpose, the Son of God came, that he might destroy the works of the devil... Think, folks, for a moment, if you would, of all the works of the devil that we see happening in humanity. Think of all the ways the devil is working and ruining and defiling things on this earth. And God's word assures Jesus came to destroy those works. He came to put an end to those works. Boy, that gives me a whole nother reason to want to pray and to pray confidently that when I see the devil working in a situation that I can pray and say, Lord, your word tells me that you sent Jesus and what he did, he came with authority and power to, to put an end to the works of the devil. And so, Lord, I'm just praying that, Lord, put an end to that. That is of the devil. Lord, that work, that thing, that, that is, that's demonic. Lord, put an end to that. You came to break and to stop the works of the devil, to, to put an end to such things and to pray with that confidence or to live in that assurance as a believer that if the devil's trying to work in some way to misguide us or ensnare us into some sin or work in a way that we can live in that reality in our spiritual walk, Lord, by you, you came to break the works of the devil. 
Lord, I can have victory in this. And Lord, I'm going to believe and walk in that because you came to destroy the works of the devil. To be able to have that awareness as we look around our world and to know that one of the things Jesus is trying to do on this earth as the devil is trying to corrupt and decay and defile everything from marriage to gender confusion to to destroying babies to, to causing division and nasty cruel, barbaric behavior on this earth that's all just demonically inspired. To realize that as the Lord's servants, do you know what the devil is trying to do? Yes, it's very clear. But do you know what Jesus is trying to do? To destroy that work. And that he wants us in the power and the authority of the spirit and the truth of the word of God to do whatever we can as good soldiers for Jesus Christ to blow up the works of the devil. And I don't mean that literally. In case this gets out on YouTube, we'll be canceled forever. Don't mean that literally. But the Bible says that it is a spiritual war. And Jesus wants to put an end to the works of the devil. And there are ways that by living righteously and speaking the truth and being an advocate of truth and love that we can do things to resist those demonic things the devil is doing. Jesus wants to work in that way. He says, verse 9, and whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him and he cannot sin. Again, the idea here is in the language continually because he's been born of God. Now, when he says here, whoever has been born of God, we've talked about this in our prior study, even in 1 John here, that a person who's experienced spiritual birth is a person who's come to know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. The Bible uses this analogy of being born spiritually to start out a spiritual life. The Bible teaches we are all created by God. That's why he's authority. We've all received our physical life from God. We've all been created by God. But the Bible teaches that because we're born inherently sinful, that we are separated from God spiritually. And we do not begin life in relationship with God. We must at some point in our life begin a spiritual life, just like we at some point are born and begin a physical, natural life. The Bible tells us in John chapter 1, to as many as receive Jesus, to those who believe in his name, he gives the right to, listen, become, become children of God. Children not born of natural descent, but born of God. So through believing upon the truth of God's word that I am a sinner, that I am separated from God, that I deserve judgment in hell because I'm a guilty sinner before God, but God loves me. And he sent Jesus to take care of the problem on my behalf. Jesus lived sinlessly. He died sacrificially. He took the punishment in my place because somebody had to be punished for sin. And then he rose from the dead and he defeated the power of sin and the power of the devil and the power of death. And that Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And nobody comes to the Father in heaven but through me. And that when we believe that, we call on the name of the Lord to be saved. The Spirit of God enters inside of us and we're awakened and we come alive spiritually. And we have a spiritual birth experience. We're born of God. That's how we become a child of God. Something happens just like there was a day of birth physically there must come a day of birth spiritually as we are born through the salvation experience. And John says that when that happens, because he says, verse 9, God's spirit enters inside of us, his divine nature works within us, which causes us to not be able to continuously live in sin. Now, he uses this analogy here of God's seed remaining in us. He's talking about the divine nature. The seed being implanted within us, the seed, the divine nature of God's spirit being within us, his spirit never departs from us, but now he works in us to continually, as his nature is being produced in us, his Holy Spirit lives within us, and the spiritual DNA of God at work within us is so real and so strong, he says, a person can, as a child of God, keep continually living in sin. Because the spiritual DNA of God's spirit is going to constantly be working against that now. See, I could enjoy a good old-fashioned sin before I was a Christian, right? You could just be selfish, and it didn't really bother you a whole lot. Then you get saved, and you're like, man, that stinks. I can't even be selfish now. Man, I say something wrong, and now I feel bad about it, right? It's because the spiritual DNA of God's spirit is within 
and he's working within us so we cannot comfortably continue in sin. It's called divine miserableness. <laughs> God just won't let you be comfortable. And that's how you know that you know because you can't continue to practice sin. So again, of course you're not going to be able to live in habitual, continuous, constant sin because he says God seeds within a person. It's just not going to be possible. The power of God's spirit won't let them continuously live in sin. That's why John concludes saying this, and it transitions to where we'll go next week. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest or revealed. Whoever doesn't practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. So notice, there are only two clear kinds of spiritual children. But God says there are two kinds of spiritual children. God says that. God says a person is either a child of the devil still, which is how we all start from birth, unfortunately, and, and we reveal that by the fruit of a sinful way of living. And he said a child of the devil, verse 10 there, he says, a child of the devil doesn't practice righteousness. Why? Because as they're living under the devil's spiritual influence, they don't care about what's doing right. They have no interest in doing what's right. Just like the devil, they just want to do whatever their selfish desires lead them to do. And so just like the devil, they behave like their father. They can live in rebellion to God. They don't want to live righteously. They don't mind living sinfully. As well as he says, a child of the devil loves his own kind. He does not love God's children. So again, because of that, when someone is still a child of the devil spiritually, they don't want to be a part of God's family. Who wants to be a part of God's family? They make me feel convicted. Or they're going to tell me what you're doing is not right. I love you, bro. So what do they do? They want to hang out with their own kind, right? They don't want to be around God's family. They want to be around similar like-minded individuals. And often they'll stay away from God's people as much as possible so they can keep doing dark and sinful things. That's why Jesus said in John 3, everyone who does evil hates the light, he won't come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Now, a child of God, in contrast, though not perfect and will fail at times, will want to do what's righteous and will want to walk in love. And a child of God wants to be with God's people. John will talk about that down in verse 14, that now we know we've passed from death to life because now we love the brethren, right? Before I was a Christian, I didn't want to hang out with Christians, but then when I got saved, this amazing thing happened. I wanted to be with Christians. I loved being with God's family because I was now a part of God's family. Look, the world, folks, is dividing over many foolish and worthless matters and issues. And God clearly says, look, let me cut to the chase. Forget what all the stupid media say. God says, let me cut to the chase. There are two kinds of people on this planet. There are children of God, and sadly, there are people who are still children of the devil. And God tells us as believers, those two class distinctions should help us understand why everything is the way it is, and it should motivate us to know what really matters and how we do and don't relate to every person around us. Let's stand together and let's pray.